Welcome back to the program. Great powers ebb and flow. A random walk through history shows us the Turks, the Germans, the Chinese, the British, the Japanese, and the Spanish have all at one time or another shaped geopolitics. For most of the past century, America has stood atop the world. Now China, after three amazing decades of internal growth, is looking to secure its place in the world. But is geopolitics a zero-sum game? Does American influence have to wane in order for China to expand? Can China effectively shape and use its economic growth to expand its sphere of influence in Asia and Africa? And as it does, how should the U.S. respond? These are some of the issues taken up by my guest Jeff Dyer in his new book, The Contest of the Century. Jeff Dyer has worked for the Financial Times for over a decade in China, Brazil, and the U.K. He was the Financial Times Bureau Chief in Beijing from 2008 to 2011, following three years working in Shanghai. It is my pleasure to welcome Jeff Dyer to the program today to talk about the contest of the century, the new era of competition with China, and how America can win. Jeff Dyer, thanks so much for joining us. Oh, thank you very much for having me on the show. It's great to have you here. To what extent is China's ambition today shaped by a natural desire to simply grow its place in the world and have greater influence? And to what extent does that generate from or come from internal politics within China? Well, I think, first of all, that's absolutely correct to say this is something quite natural. There's nothing really here we should be too surprised about. This is what big, important countries do. And when they grow to the kind of size and scale and have the sorts of interests that China has. One of the comparisons I make is with the, the U.S. in the 1890s and 1900s, the kind of Teddy Roosevelt era, when the U.S. just reached this kind of critical mass that it decided it wanted to have a much larger international role. And that's really the point that China has reached, or I feel like returned to, as a result of this you know, 30 years of rapid economic growth. Um, so, so that's... You know, that is the way that big countries think. But there are definitely internal pressures that are pushing China down to take some of this more slightly more aggressive foreign policy. And one of the things I think to point out is there is this very kind of abrasive sense of nationalism that's been actually in some ways de- deliberately developed by the Communist Party in the last couple of decades since Tiananmen Square. That is very anti-Japanese, quite skeptical about the US. And that to some extent does underpin some of the things that they've been doing overseas. There's at times, there's a sense almost that emotion is taking a bit more of a role and, and you know, rational calculation about national interest is taking a bit less of a role than some of the things the Chinese have been up to. But the broad picture, I think, is that there's nothing, there's no surprise here. This is what big countries do. Is there a danger in the nationalistic part of that, the emotional part of that, as you say, that those are the kind of things that can cause the country to make mistakes as it reaches out to the world? Very much so. I mean, that is one of the, the real risks in this, this kind of phase that China is now going through, especially in the way it deals with Japan, which is the U.S.'s most important ally in Asia. Um, you, you mentioned I lived in, in, in Shanghai from 2005 to 2008. Almost my first week in Shanghai, there was a huge anti-Japanese demonstration. We kind of woke up one morning and there were 10 to 20,000 people going down the main street in, in Shanghai. And they're walking past the Japanese restaurants and Japanese shops and throwing bottles and paint. And the police are really just you know, laughing and watching this happen. Um, so there, you know, there is this, this strain of kind of a very sort of nasty sort of victim nationalism in China that does burst into life every now and again from these kind of spasmodic bursts that happened in 2005 to 2008. It's happened a lot in the last couple of years. And so when you look at the opinion polls now, 
between the two countries. In China, something like 90% of the population say they really dislike and distrust Japan. And in Japan, you get very similar figures of 90% or so. So that's a very, very volatile situation that we're now looking at. And of course, those those battles, those issues have deep historical roots between China and Japan. It's very hard for us really to understand the nature and and the depth of those issues. Absolutely, there it's you know it's, the U.S. is very much kind of waiting in a minefield as soon as it enters into those issues. I mean, from the Chinese point of view, obviously there are the really stark Japanese war crimes during the occupation in the 30s and the Second World War. The Nanjing Massacre and things like this. But it does actually go back a bit further to you know, the latter half of the 19th century as well, where Japan fe- defeated China in 1895. But I think before then, it was a real psychic shock to the Chinese who had really seen themselves as the most successful as the model country in Asia. And they had to, and they watched Japan all of a sudden from 1860 suddenly modernize itself, look to the West for lots of influences and become this much more dynamic and powerful society than China. And that was a real, a real kind of shock to the Chinese sense of self-belief, which uh, you know, they, um, now they think, in, a, in the back of their minds, they think, well, now we've kind of reverted to the natural order that we are now the bigger economy and the bigger power in Asia. And that's the sort of the, the backstory, if you like, that's driving this kind of very you know, potentially nasty rivalry between the two countries. Much of the expansion, certainly over the past 15, 20 years, with respect to China, has come from its desire and its need for greater natural resources. Talk a little bit about that in the context of China's expanding geopolitical influence. Well, one of the classic dilemmas of a, a rising nation is that they fear that other nations will be able to cut off their kind of economic lifelines. And as China's case, it's really the, you know, the really key thing is importing energy, importing oil. If you like the, the kind of almost central date, if you like, in this, this part of China, it was 1993, where China went from being a country that was self-sufficient in oil to a country that needs to import oil. And now if you fast forward a couple of decades, China is now the second biggest consumer of oil, of oil in the world, and I think the biggest importer. And half of its oil now comes from imports. And almost all of that comes on on ships that come from the Middle East, that come from Africa, and that have to travel through these very narrow sea lanes, uh, particularly the Malacca Straits near Indonesia and Singapore. And that's a real, in the Chinese mind, it's a real vulnerability because they fear that if they did get into some sort of conflict in another country, and particularly if the U.S. is involved, the U.S. could really cut off the supply of oil, could cut off these ships coming through these narrow straits keeping its economy going. And so underlying the build-up that you've seen in the Chinese Navy in the last couple of years is this sense that you know, we need to have a response to you know, the potential threat that someone could block us off from the world economy. Talk a little bit about how the Chinese responded to seeing economic problems in the West in 2008-2009, and might China have responded differently? I just sort of think that the financial crisis is a hugely important event, not just for you know, in economic terms for, for China, but also for the way it understands its role in the world. There had always really been, after when Deng Xiaoping came to power in the late 70s and he implemented these economic reforms and he set China on this path to a more kind of modernizing, reformist, open to the international economy country, he, but he, he, he very much encouraged his colleagues to keep a low profile, not to get too involved in international politics. But in the background, there had always been this debate in China about what China would do 
when it became a powerful country. There were hawks in China who said, we're going to need to challenge the U.S. We're going to need to push back against the U.S. and assert ourselves against the U.S. And the more dovish people in China would say, actually, our interests are best served by inserting ourselves in the global economy and playing along with the rules that the U.S. has set for the global economy. That's going to be the way we're going to do best in the world. So this debate did exist in China, but it was always about the future. You know, and then one day in the future, when we are powerful, the financial crisis had this hugely powerful psychological impact in China. The sense that the U.S. was in decline became very, very much the dominant view. And so the hawks all of a sudden said, you know what, this is now our time. This is our moment. This is when we need to start making our move. And this is when we need to start pushing back against the U.S. So it really kind of brought that slightly academic debate that had always been happening in China to kind of the forefront of the way they think about their place in the world and are managing their policy. And how have they responded to that in being more proactive in that economic framework? How has China acted? How has China responded since 2009? There are a number of different layers to it. I think the most important one is, is all these issues to do with the seas around in China. You've got the, in the East China Sea and the South China Sea. I know your listeners might have heard about these somewhat obscure disputes about uninhabited islands in these seas. There was a whole issue at the end of last year about something called an air defense identification zone that China set up in the East China Sea. The underlying theory behind all this is that China is just incrementally trying to gain greater control over this area, over this space in the Western Pacific, and the process to slowly, surely push the U.S. further back out to sea. And the U.S. has been the by the completely the dominant power in that region, and the U.S. Navy has been very dominant in the Western Pacific, really since the end of the Second World War. And China is just slowly trying to revert that, not by sparking a conflict with the U.S., indeed far from it, but just by slowly and surely gaining greater control and pushing the U.S. back and creating a sense of uncertainty and lack of confidence in the mind of American commanders. And that's going to be one of the main kind of contests, if you like, in the next couple of decades, is this, this slightly... This, this battle that seems a little bit low-bore and, and but never really kind of big dramatic issues, but it's just this incremental, slow pushing back of, of, of the U.S. back out to sea. Some people describe this strategy as salami slicing. You know, it's just little little steps at a time. Talk a little bit about the role of Japan as this broader conflict or competition between the U.S. and China plays out. Japan is absolutely key for for the U.S., it's a central ally in Asia, and a lot of what the U.S. does militarily is really revolved around all the different installations it has in Japan, all the different places that you know, ships are based and troops are based. So Japan's absolutely central to the U.S., and there are, Japan is becoming a really you know, difficult dilemma for the Obama administration. There are very good things that happen in Japan from the American point of view, and very bad things. The good things are that. Japan, for the first time in a decade, now has a coherent government. Um, you know, Japan has had six or seven prime ministers in the previous six or seven years, and no one could quite remember their names, and they'd last a few months, and then they'd, they'd have to leave. And there was just this sense that Japan was just becoming a very incoherent actor on the international stage. Now, under Prime Minister Abe, who's been in power for just over a year, won a couple of elections, you now have a government that is very coherent, has a powerful agenda, is reviving its economy, it has a strong views on how it wants to perform in the world. And the, militarily, the kind of things that Japan is talking about are exactly the kind of things that the U.S. would like to see Japan doing. But closer cooperation with the U.S., 
there are tweaks in Japanese law that would allow the Japanese to be more active in some of the kind of defensive deterrence military arrangements that the U.S. wants to implement. That's the good bit from the U.S. side. The bad bit is that you have this, just as you have this um, really quite troubling nationalism in China, you have the same thing in Japan as well. And Prime Minister Abe and some of his friends are flirting with some really quite dangerous, revisionist, even denialist views about important bits of the Second World War legacy that Japan has that are really upsetting the Chinese, but also upsetting America's other key ally in the region, South Korea. One of the big fault lines at the moment in, in Asia is the fact that Japan and South Korea are barely talking to each other. And that's a real problem for the U.S. So the worry for the U.S. is that you, you, know, you have this stronger leader now in Japan, but he's actually fanning the flames of all some of these tensions, and actually you know, the risk is that he, he might suck you into some sort of conflagration that the U.S. doesn't necessarily want to get into. And Australia is also a burgeoning player in all of this. Australia is, actually. Australia is one of the, the most kind of loyal U.S. allies. It doesn't get a lot of attention um, but it's either there, you know, in Iraq, for instance, even in the worst days of the Iraq War, Australians still sent troops and were very kind of you know, loyally backing up the U.S. But it's interesting to watch that there was a period in the 2000s where Australia did, like a lot of other countries, did seem to wobble with its relationship with the U.S. They did, you know, particularly during the Iraq War, there was a sort of backlash against the close ties. And the Chinese, for a while, thought that maybe they could slightly shift Australia's orientation and, and maybe push it a little bit away from the U.S. But actually, because of this more assertive foreign policy that I was talking about earlier, some of the way that China's been pushing these claims, Australia is one of the countries that's found itself pushed much more closely back to the U.S. because it is scared of what a powerful China will, will, will mean. And so you've now had this arrangement where the U.S. is now going to effectively station troops in Australia for the first time. Not many troops. I mean, it's not very significant militarily. What it means is that Australia is basically doubling down on its alliance with the U.S. for another generation. That's the kind of broad political um, interpretation of, of what Australians have done in the last few years, which is, again, another sort of long-term setback for China's plans to slowly squeeze the U.S. out. Are we seeing a greater sophistication today among China's current leaders than we've seen in the past few years? So China's trying to... Uh, Definitely, they're trying to have a more sophisticated strategy. Um, what you saw in China in the first half of the last decade of the war was something we call the charm offensive. We're trying to ch try to um, develop very good ties with its neighbors um, and as a way of both increasing its role in the region and also you know, helping its own economy. And that was very, very successful. And then after 2008, after the financial crisis, you saw this slightly more aggressive, more assertive Chinese foreign policy. The new leadership have been in power for the last year are trying to develop a strategy that involves bits of that, so that in North East Asia, they're pushing back very hard against Japan, but they're trying to get on very well with South Korea. And in Southeast Asia, they're pushing back very hard against the Philippines, but they're trying to have a better relationship with Vietnam. So they're trying to do a bit more divide and rule, have a more subtle approach to the region. But that's a very hard trick to pull off because all these countries have territorial disputes with China. And so if they see China pushing hard against one country, that might not be them today, but they can understand that that might be them tomorrow if China wants to, to do well and if they dispute the China being very tough with the Philippines. The Vietnamese see that and understand that you know, that could be them in a few years' time. So it's going to be very hard for China to really pull that off. But they are definitely trying to be more sophisticated and more subtle under this new leadership than they were 
maybe in 2008, 2009, 2010, where they were it's quite blunt in the way they approach the region. And is it complicated by the fact that China is facing its own economic problems in terms of slowing growth at this point? Absolutely. That's a very, that's a very kind of interesting factor to, to watch out for the next couple of years. You have this new leader in China, Xi Jinping, who has you know, laid out quite an ambitious agenda for economic reforms. He sees that the economy is slowing, and he understands that the way that he can you know, give the economy more of a nudge is by introducing reforms that slowly open up bits of the economy and that reduce the power that the state has and big state-owned companies have. Now, the problem with that is that it requires taking on some very powerful actors right within the heart of the Communist Party. That's a real sort of really powerful vested interest in China. And so the risk is that maybe he's tempted in order to win the political capital for some of those very tough battles he's going to have ahead in domestic policy, he might be tempted to you know, be a bit rough in some of these foreign policy issues, tempted to play very hard with Japan. Certainly, it's going to be very hard for him to be seen to be backing down in any of these issues in the next few years. So there's a big incentive for China to at least, at least maintain a certain level of tension, even actually to increase it in some ways. That's definitely a potential dynamic that we, you know, we need to watch out for in the next few years. And to what extent is that dynamic mitigated in some respects by China's need for continued economic relationships with the United States? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I've, you know, I've been talking about this sort of you know, geopolitical tensions and rivalry as if that's the only thing that's going to be on, on, going to be gone in politics in the region. But you do have this very, very powerful counterforce, which is these huge links that China has with the rest of the world, with the rest of Asia, with the U.S., this kind of, you know, globalization that developed in the last couple of decades. That, that's not going to go away. And that does narrow the options, that does narrow the space, that does create a lot of pressure for China not to rock the boat. Yeah, but we can't be too naive about this. I mean, the economic relationship between China and Japan is a huge relationship. They have trade $350 billion every year. But that hasn't stopped the two countries taking some very risky positions with each other and having a, a very kind of high level of tension. So we can't guarantee that these economic links will restrain countries from doing things that are risky. But it definitely does put a lot more pressure on them. Is China trying to engage in greater efforts to implement soft power around the world? And if so, how is it doing that? Very much so. Soft power has become an, almost an obsession in China in a way that you don't really hear it in the U.S., but it's become it's very much a big issue in China. There are, there are university courses on it. There are museums on it. It's one of the closest foreign policy advisors to President Xi Jinping really made his name as an academic by pioneering soft power in China. And one of the main things that they've been doing in the last few years is trying to take their media companies abroad. Um, so they now have a cable TV news channel in the U.S., for instance. They have radio stations that they give content to in the U.S. They have English-language newspapers that are available in hotels throughout Europe and the U.S. They're trying to win a broader audience for for their media companies. And in the process, they hope that you know, not to completely squeeze out CNN and the BBC, but in the process, they might slowly change the kinds of values, the kinds of ideas that are dominant in, in international media. And just to give you a sense of the kind of scale of skill, the ambitions that China has, if you go to Times Square in New York now, and you remember they have those very famous neon advertisements, mm -hmm. well, the really, the really kind of famous picture postcard one is, at, I think it's at 47th and Broadway. And if you look at that building now, there is, Coca-Cola, Samsung, HSBC, you know, three of the world's best-known brands. 
And then the fourth advertisement is for the Xinhua News Agency, which is the, the Chinese state news agency. So that's a real kind of statement of intent, statement of ambition. I think it's going to be very hard for those companies to, to gain an audience. I don't think there's really a demand for the, the kind of news that they do. To me, it seems the, the way that they could be successful is actually telling you the inside story about what's happening in China. That would be the way that a new news organization can really make an impact. That's how Al Jazeera has become a very successful organization. Because they were able to tell the world the inside story in the Iraq war, and then they're able to tell the world the inside story on the Arab Spring. and gave them a platform to, to, to win a broader international audience. But with these Chinese state, they don't broadcasters, the last thing they're going to tell you is the real inside story and what's happening in China. So they're kind of curtailed in their ability really to win an international audience. And I think more broadly, the Chinese approach to soft power is really very flawed. I mean, they think of it as a, a bureaucratic exercise. They throw a lot of money at it um, in the way you might build a bridge or a, a new kind of wind power plant or something like that. But soft power is not something that comes top down. It comes from society. It comes from the dynamism and creativity of individuals. And that's where China has a weakness because, because of the Chinese political system. Often precisely the kind of people who might win an international audience, the kind of artists and intellectuals and painters and film directors who could be the sort of people who would slowly change their perceptions about China are precisely the people who are the kind of blunt end of Chinese political repression and are, are you know, the ones who are being harassed and arrested um, and pushed around by the Chinese authorities. So they're really fighting this kind of cultural battle, if you like, with one arm behind their back. And to what extent can the West and the U.S. specifically use those weaknesses to counterbalance some of these Chinese geopolitical efforts? Well, something like soft power, I think, is you know, just a case of not to get too worried about it. I mean, sometimes you hear people saying, oh, well, you know, we in the West, we need to invest much more in our own media to cope with the Chinese and the Russians. And I think it's a case of just saying, you know, just holding our nerve, if you like, and saying we don't need to, we don't need to fall for that bait. But more, more broadly, in some of these tensions in Asia, I think the thing to think about it is the following. If this was the U.S. against China and Asia, the U.S. would have a very tough time, if for no other reason than geography, because it's 8,000 miles away, and China's right in the center. But the key thing about Asia is it's not just China that's rising. There's a whole bunch of countries that are rising and think that now is their time. Think about South Korea. It's a very successful country. Indonesia is doing very well. Vietnam is doing very well. India, the other, you know, the other 1 billion-plus country that's also this rising power. And most of these countries actually want the same things as the U.S. That's really the kind of the key sort of long-term trend that's in the U.S.'s favor. These countries want freedom of trade that goes across the Pacific. They want freedom of navigation. And they want a system where disputes are resolved by some kind of sense of rule of law, some process, and not just by being bullied and pushed around by the biggest country and pushed around by China. So the U.S. has a very, in the long term, has a very kind of favorable situation where the kind of things that it wants for Asia are precisely what most of the rest of Asia wants as well. As long as the U.S. plays a smart, careful, disciplined, long-term strategy, it has a really kind of big advantage in Asia. What's the big mistake that the U.S. could make in dealing with this situation? I think there are a couple of things. I mean, one is just um, you, know, you need to be focused. I live in Washington, D.C., and uh, in Washington, D.C., pretty much every day of the week, you could find someone saying that almost every nook and cranny in the world is a vital national security interest for the U.S., from Central Asia to East Africa. The thing that one of the things that you know, 
this challenge from China is going to create for the U.S. is going to be have to have to be much more focused in the way it thinks about the world. Which are the areas it's interested in, or which are the areas it's not interested in? And have to make sure it focuses resources on that, and to keep a very close attention on Asia. What happened during the Iraq and Afghanistan war was that the Chinese went around the region and basically said, "Look, you know, the U.S. is distracted. They're not really interested in you guys anymore. You should, you know, pay a bit more attention to us, a bit more respect to us, because the U.S. is is not really focused on Asia anymore." And then you had know, the Obama administration came in and they launched their their pivot and started pushed back against that idea. But in the last year, again, you've had the same sort of conversation started up in Asia. Secretary of State Kerry is very much focused on the Middle East and the peace process in Syria and Iran. And President Obama last year was supposed to go to Asia and to cancel his trip because the government shut down. These kinds of things create this, this sense of uncertainty in the region. People think that the U.S. has maybe you know, got distracted again. And so China is again going around the region saying, you know, look at the U.S. They've, they've lost interest again in Asia. You can't rely on these guys. So I think the U.S. has to keep that sense of discipline and focus. And then the other thing is I think it needs to have an economic agenda in Asia, an economic story to tell in Asia. This can't just be about the U.S. having a few aircraft carriers that can come in and solve our problems. If the U.S. wants to be relevant in Asia, it needs to tell a story about how its economy depends on the prosperity in Asia and how prosperity in Asia depends on the U.S. economy, which is absolutely true. That is very much the situation for the U.S., but that's actually quite a hard story to tell in the U.S. these days because there is so much skepticism about globalization because middle-class salaries have stagnated so much. There's a real sort of groundswell of pushing back against new trade deals, pushing back against new economic integration. But that's going to be the, the, the trick for the U.S. is, to, some, is to, to find ways and find a story and policies that can convince Asia that it's economically relevant and not just a kind of security partner. And what is the role of the Chinese currency in shaping these things? So one of the other interesting things that the Chinese are doing is they're trying to take their currency uh, global, if you like, in terms of the renminbi or the yuan, uh, different names it has. And they've been launching these different experiments in Hong Kong the last few years, allowing people to trade in the currency, to invest in the currency. And they hope that over time it will grow into being this, this very important international currency that would start to challenge the kind of economic and political role of the dollar plays. This is not just about making life easy for Chinese business. This is about definitely about slowly undercutting the kind of dominant role that the U.S. dollar has enjoyed. But again, that's going to be very hard for China because their economy is, the financial system, I should say, is very closed off. They have a very high wall of capital controls that makes it hard to move money in and out of the country. And, going, and if they want, but if they want to have an international currency, they're going to have to make it much easier for people to to hold large amounts of Chinese assets to, to really put money into the country. So in order for them to really transform the role our currency plays internationally, they're going to have to introduce these you know, quite massive reforms to the way they run their economy. That's going to be very delicate and very difficult to do. That's a real challenge for China in the long term. But, you know, they do have this kind of critical mass now, and you are potentially going to have a situation in 20, 30 years' time where it's not inconceivable that China would have an economy twice the size of the U.S. Um, that's, you know, it's not definite that's going to happen, but it's, you, know, you could easily you can easily chart out scenarios along those lines. That means that you know, China is going to have this the size and the scale that is going to increase the role that its currency plays. But without those economic reforms, it will really struggle to actually topple the dollar. Jeff Dyer, the book is the contest of the century: the new era of competition with China 
and how America can win. It's just out from Kanaf. Jeff, I thank you so much for spending time with us today. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me on the show. Thank you. We'll take a break. I'll be right back.